In this session together, we're going to look at what we've called revival experiences. Now, my brothers and sisters, when the barrier that separates the earthly realm from the heavenly realm is breached, and the presence of God comes into the earthly realm and impacts people, they're going to have experiences. A person cannot encounter God without something happening at some level. That doesn't necessarily mean it's got to be the same experience for everybody. Some people are emotional. Some people aren't. Some are more dramatic than others. But when humanity collides with divinity, there's going to be a reaction. There's got to be some sort of a connection there that is made spiritually, and people are impacted by that. Now, before we get into this particular session on experiences, let us clearly understand, let's set up some ground rules here, that the Holy Spirit of God comes and He moves and He touches people in times of revival, but the Holy Spirit never violates the written Word of God. We must stay with the written Word of God. The Holy Spirit comes and He moves and He touches and He blesses. Heavens open and revival comes and it's a supernatural thing. It's a supernatural season in which God is impacting people in atmospheric revival or in times of revival. But in those times, God does not violate His Word. He never has. He never will. One of the greatest revivalists in history was the founder of Methodism, and we're going to talk about him some more in other sessions. But John Wesley was the man that God used in the 1730s and 40s to ignite the first great awakening. John Wesley became the founder of Methodism. But John Wesley had four criteria by which all revival encompassed had to adhere to, and that was scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. And even in the Great Awakening in England, in the great revival that came in America and the colonies, and we're going to talk about these things in other sessions, those that followed Wesley's teaching understood, those that became preachers in those days, circuit riders, They understood that all that God was doing, as glorious as it was, it had to line up with Scripture, it had to line up with tradition, it had to line up with reason and experience. Wesley understood very clearly that revival could not just be entrusted to whatever came Well, that's just God, you see. I mean, one of the great dangers in this hour of the moving of God in the earth right now are people that come in with experiences and prophetic words and visitations of angels and all of these other things that we passionately believe in. But people come in with some of these things that literally go contrary to Scripture. And my dear brothers and sisters, when those things happen, those things are not of God. It's just that simple. So as we move into this session of study together of revival experiences, let us understand, laying some ground rules, that God never violates His Word. He never violates Scripture. And when God does something, it's holy. It's always holy. It can take on all kinds of different looks and manifestations and so forth and so on. But anything that God does by the Holy Spirit is holy. It's holy. Even if it's different, it's sacred. I mean, can you imagine Moses in Exodus chapter 3 before the burning bush? I mean, here's a bush ablaze with the glory of God. And yet in the midst of that, it was an oddity. It was a curiosity to Moses initially. And yet God spoke to him and said, Moses, take off your sandals, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. It was more than a burning bush. That was an experience-driven kind of event. It was holy in the eyes of God, and Moses understood that very, very well. 
when the heavens open and God comes, it is going to be supernatural. But nothing that God does that's considered a new thing will ever violate or contradict His written Word. As long as we understand that, we'll stay on safe ground. And we'll be able to, if you will pardon the expression, we'll be able to eat the chicken and not choke on the bone. In times of revival, the church will be strengthened and prompted to a deeper love for God that will be demonstrated by a greater emphasis on holiness and devotion to Him. Ultimately, at the end of the day, whatever form revival comes in, In our last session, we looked at seven different faces of revival. But the purpose of revival is always the end game in the heart of God in all revival is ultimately to bring people to a place of repentance from sin and secondly, to bring them also to a place of returning to their first love of His presence and His glory. It's to make the church love Him again to repent of sin and come back to their first love. The word repentance means to turn. It means to turn in another direction and to move in another direction. And so all revival experiences, whatever those experiences are and however they ultimately play out, at the end of the process, they should bring people to a place of turning from sin and turning toward God because they've come to love Him more than they loved Him before the heavens were open. Any revival that does not cause people to love God more and does not cause people to change is not a revival that's been sent from God. It can be a variety of other things, but when God does something, He will do something that will bring people to loving Him more and turning from their wicked ways that had caused an offense. What about extreme or highly emotional experiences and manifestations of the Holy Spirit that are often witnessed in revival? I remember having an experience with God on January the 12th. It's in the book, and I won't tell the whole story. But I was praying. I was walking on a piece of land that we had purchased to build a church building, and God visited me in a profound, life-transforming way and I could never be the same. But God made me to know that great revival was coming. And so we prayed and fasted and fasted and prayed and prayed and fasted for three years for a revival, and we didn't even know what revival was. We just knew that God was going to do something that we had never experienced before. And we prayed and fasted. And I mean, brothers and sisters back in those days, you know, I was fasting several days a week. And we were just desperate for God to do something. And three years to the week that I had the experience with God in 1990, revival came. The windows of heaven opened and the presence and the glory of God came. And we were suddenly catapulted into an experience of experience in the manifested presence of God meetings day and night and night and day and day and night, six days a week that went on for four weeks. I mean, people didn't wash their clothes anymore. People didn't wash their dishes. People started eating off of paper plates. There wasn't time to go home long enough to clean house. I mean, it was just nonstop church. Newspapers were coming and writing articles about it. Hundreds and hundreds of people were coming to the meetings. It was the most amazing, astounding thing that I'd ever seen. But the reality of it was is when revival came, I wasn't sure I wanted it because it wasn't what I expected. I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't what I expected, whatever that was, if you understand what I mean. Because what we were seeing were manifestations of holy laughter. And I mean, the presence of God would just fill the place. And it was like turning on the sprinkler system, filled with God and the glory and the anointing and the power. I mean, people were just laughing hysterically. And with my head, with my cognitive intellect, I'm looking at this and I'm saying, God, we've been praying all this time. For this, 
That's what my head was saying. But yet my heart was doing somersaults because I knew the glory, I knew the presence of God, I knew the anointing of God, and my heart is just overflowing with gratitude that what we've been praying and believing for, it has come, it has come, and yet my head is going, what in the world is this? And one of the big challenges in those early days is I had to shut off my head and listen to what I knew to be God in my heart. And that's the reason that some people to this day don't get involved in revival is their head talks their heart out of the very thing that God wanted to do because it doesn't line up with the head. And some people are just that way. Now, everything that God does he does for a reason. Did everybody hear that? God's not an entertainer. God's not out just trying to show off. He's God. He doesn't have to prove anything to anybody. Doesn't have a low self-esteem. He's not walking off a bad childhood. God is God. And everything God does, He does for a reason. And whatever He does and however He chooses to do it, it is always holy, and we must reverence it and honor it as such. But brothers and sisters, sometimes when God does something, it may be a bit off the chart with what normal people want to define churches as this is what church is supposed to look like. We're going to look at manifestations of revivals, but they've been found throughout the Scriptures. And these manifestations have also been demonstrated historically in every great revival in history. Can I read a, a little portion tonight, some of the accounts? Uh, this is an excellent book, The Ten Greatest Revivals Ever, by Dr. Elmer Towns and Douglas Porter. And there's a second set of reference books that I would encourage you, if you are really passionate about revival as I am, that was just published in 2007, by a man by the name of Michael McClyman, M-A-C-C-L-Y-M-O-N-D. And it's called The Encyclopedia of Religious Revivals in America. It's a two-volume set. It is an awesome scholarly work on the history of revivals in the last 300 years in our nation. I want to read tonight a quotation and a little bit of discussion about the great Cane Ridge Revival of 1800 in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. The Cane Ridge Revival actually began in a communion service at the Red River Church near the Tennessee-Kentucky border. Reverend James McCready was administering the ecumenical service, preaching a Friday to Monday meeting. Nothing unusual happened until Monday. Then a woman at the far end of the house gave vent to her feelings in loud cries and shouts. When dismissed, the congregation showed no disposition to leave, but many of them remained silently weeping in every part of the house. The ensuing revival was described this way. William McGee, the fellow pastor, soon felt such a power come over him that he, not seeming to know what he did, left his seat, sat down on the floor, trembling under the consciousness of the power of God. John McKee, his brother, felt an irresistible urge to preach, and the people were eager to hear him. He began, and then a woman shouted and would not be silent. Now, beloved, these were Presbyterians and Methodists. It goes on, Methodist preacher's duty to disregard the usual orderly habits of the denomination, and the preacher passed along the aisle shouting, exhorting vehemently. The clamor and confusion were increased tenfold. The flame was blown to its height. Screams for mercy were mingled with shouts of ecstasy. And a universal, that's what they called it, a universal agitation. Has anybody here ever been universally agitated? I love a meeting with some universal agitation in it pervaded the whole multitude who were bowed before it as a field of grain waves before the wind. Such agitation was to become the hallmark of the Cane Ridge Revival. Now let me skip down and give you an eyewitness account 
of what was going on out here. Now, you say this was an orderly meeting. No, this was in a valley by a river in eastern Kentucky where 25,000 people are gathered in open-air meetings just out in the middle of nowhere. Here's the description. The glare of the blazing campfires falling on a dense assemblage of heads simultaneously bowed in adoration and reflected back from long ranges of tents. Has anybody ever heard of camp meeting? Well, the word camp meeting came from the Cane Ridge Revival because they didn't have a Holiday Inn or a Hilton or a Day's End or a Ramada. People came in covered wagons and they brought tents and they camped at the revival. So thus we have the term camp meeting. Tents on every side, hundreds of candles and lamps suspended among the trees, together with numerous torches flashing to and fro, throwing an uncertain light upon the tremendous foliage, giving an appearance of dim and indefinite extent to the depth of the forest, the solemn chanting of hymns swelling and falling on the night wind, or shouts bursting from persons under the intense agitation of mind. The sudden spasms, they called them spasms, the sudden spasms which seized upon scores of people and unexpectedly dashed them to the ground, all conspired to invest the scene with terrific interest, to work up the feelings to the highest pitch of excitement. Add to this the lateness of an hour to which the exercises were protracted, sometimes till two or three in the morning or longer, the eagerness of curiosity stimulated for so long a time previous, the reverent enthusiasm which ascribed the strange contortions witnessed to the mystery, the mysterious agency of God, the fervent and sanguine temperament of some of the preachers, and lastly, the boiling zeal of the Methodist, who could not refrain from shouting aloud during the sermon and shaking hands all around afterward. According to a pastor at the scene, the number, listen to this, the number of people who fell simultaneously in one of the meetings under the power of God was an astounding 3,000 people. Can you imagine this? like waves of glory going over people, people being slain in the Spirit by the thousands suddenly by the power of God. The preaching at Cane Ridge Camp Meeting and other places was intense, hot and moving. Another eyewitness remembered, as the meetings progressed and the excitement grew more intense and the crowd rushed from preacher to preacher. Why were they rushing from preacher to preacher? They just had meetings going on everywhere. They didn't have sound systems. So you've just got preachers out here just preaching and people just moving from preacher to preacher. I mean, it was just organized by the Holy Ghost pandemonium. Crowd rushed from preacher to preacher, singing, shouting, laughing, falling upon men to repent. Men and women fell to the ground unable to help themselves in such numbers that it was impossible for the multitude to move about, especially at night when the excitement was the greatest without trampling them. And so those who fell, now listen to this, there were so many people falling out under the power of God in that revival, they gathered them up and they carried them away to the meeting house where the spiritually slain, as they were called, were laid upon the floor. Some of them lay quiet, unable to move or speak. Some could talk but were unable to move. Some would shriek as an intense agony bound. And some would bound about like a live fish out of water. And this is going on day and night. No doubt the more respectable folks who heard of such an account were scandalized, but those who took part were convinced that God was at work. There was a newspaper reporter from Louisville, Kentucky, a skeptical newspaper reporter, rode by horseback to eastern Kentucky. And he described it when he came into the valley, he just had this tingling sensation all over his body. Now recognize, understand, this is 1800. They haven't discovered electricity yet. 
Had they discovered electricity yet, he would call it, it was like electricity. And he said it was just in the air that when you arrived there, there was just something. Well, what did we talk about in our last session? When the windows of heaven open, the presence of God comes, that's the glory. It's when people experience God using one or more of their five natural senses of sight, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. People were literally being touched by the power of God. Now this sounds so wild. People came from everywhere in their covered wagons. I mean, in the Cane Ridge Revival, it was said in those days that the horses pulling the wagons would come walking through towns in Kentucky and West Virginia and North Carolina. You just see the horses pulling the covered wagons And everybody in the wagon would be totally out under the power of God. And the horse was just going home or going somewhere, pulling the wagon, and everything in the wagon was just totally out. I mean, days later because of these encounters. Now somebody would say, but Brother John, what's the fruit of all that? Over a thousand churches were planted. Revival came to this state and all the states round about him. Oh, entire denominations came out of that revival. I mean, they ran on the afterglow of that revival for 150 years. Now, it didn't look very decent. It didn't look very organized. It didn't look very kosher, if you would, for religious people. It looked wild and woolly, but it was God touching people. And out of that, I mean, how many have ever heard of Daniel Boone? Daniel Boone got radically saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. Anybody ever heard of Davy Crockett? Well, these were Cane Ridge revivalists that came out of that great outpouring of the Holy Spirit that literally touched the nation, primarily in the mid-Atlantic states and the southeastern United States, all the way to states like Alabama and even Mississippi of revival fires came out of that great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In spite of all these things that were going on that would have looked to some as being a little bit out of order. Now somebody would probably raise their hand and say, well, Brother John, was all of that really God? Now listen to me very carefully. And if you'll understand this principle, it'll be a blessing to you. Every time... There is a genuine move of the Holy Spirit. There will be a corresponding move of the enemy and a corresponding move of goofy people. Every time God does something, the enemy is going to come and try to defile it and pollute it and short-circuit it and get it off track into weirdness and wackiness and get it outside the parameters of Scripture in order to hijack it. But into it as well are going to come people. People, for whatever reason, some trying to exploit it, others trying to draw attention to themselves. So what then do we do with these things? We don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You see, some people, primarily in ministry, they're so afraid of strange fire, they extinguish all fire and install these elaborate fire extinguisher systems in their churches that anytime God wants to do something, they can immediately hose it down because they're so afraid of strange fire. I have absolutely no fear of strange fire. My great fear is no fire. I can deal with people and I can deal with devils, but we cannot deal with the absence of the revelation of the glory of God. We want to yield to the Holy Spirit. We want to give Him latitude to do whatever He wants to do. At the same time, we'll kick the devil out and we'll set people down. People start getting weird and wacky and bizarre. We love them. We bless them. We minister to them. But we shut them down. 
because we don't allow people to hijack revival. We don't allow people to hijack a genuine move of the Holy Spirit. We don't allow devils to come and pollute it and defile it and twist it and make it weird and wacky and bizarre. I mean, I've just finished another book. It's being edited right now. Because in some segments of the body of Christ, even among people in pursuit of revival, they've brought things that are clearly new age right in, and they don't have the discernment to know what's chicken and what's the bone. And they've departed from the word of the living God. Well, what do we do then? Do we kick out the move of God? No, we just bring the correction and the blessing. And then we move on and go on with what God's wanting to do. But we don't just throw the doors wide open and say, you know, bring mysticism and bring Hinduism and Islam and bring New Age and bring the occult and bring whatever you want. I mean, it's just an all-you-can-eat buffet. Let's just put it all in one big place and let's just all enjoy it together. No, we keep it holy. We keep it sacred. We keep it God. We stay with the Word. But we let God do whatever God wants to do the way God wants to do it, even if it's a little bit different. Don't be afraid of wildfire. Be afraid of no fire. Because that's the reason revivals many times have been shut down. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Remember that defining what is proper in revival has never been an easy task. And sometimes we just have to go along and trust God and trust the Word and trust discernment. But let us trust and not be suspicious. Let us hunger and not draw lines and limitations and say what we will or we won't do. But we will be faithful to the Word and we will be faithful to give all the glory to God and we will be faithful to keep our eyes upon Jesus. And if we will do those things, all of these other things will take care of themselves. Now, what are some of the common experiences of people in revival? Well, we've read of many of these demonstrated from the Cane Ridge, Kentucky revival. And these experiences are not unique to Cane Ridge. Many of these experiences are found in Scripture, and they have been common to revivals all the way back. That's the reason that if you really have a passion for revival, it would be a good thing to invest in the encyclopedia of religious revivals because you can go back to the first great awakening in America with Jonathan Edwards in the colonies and you can find every one of these manifestations in those days. You can find these manifestations in John Wesley's meetings. John Wesley was an Oxford-educated Anglican who wore a clerical collar and was a very scholarly preacher, teacher. And yet when Wesley preached, people fell out of their seats under the power of God, had trances. Now I spent four years in a Methodist seminary, and I must have been absent the day they talked about some of those things, because surely they didn't leave it out. But it is, in fact, all part of the historical record. That these manifestations were, have been a part of all great awakenings. The first one of the common experiences many people have in revival is an overwhelming sense of holy peace and contentment. In the Hebrides revival in Scotland in 1948, it was said that the presence of God was so wonderful, was so glorious that people in the revival would walk home at night after the meetings because they were afraid that if they started their automobiles, the sound of the car engines would disturb the presence of God hovering over their town. It seemed so holy to them. It seemed so peaceful to them that they did not want to even disturb the holy presence of God, the peace of God that was in entire towns by cranking up automobiles and they would actually walk home from the meetings. We've seen this wonderful sense of holy peace has been in so many of our meetings from day one. People just don't want to leave. I was in Louisville, Kentucky, or actually just across the river in Indiana last week and we just had phenomenal meetings. 
And we had a particular service that began at 6 o'clock on Saturday night. And I mean, we preached and ministered and prayed and worshiped and God came and people were touched and blessed and ministered to in a powerful way. But I mean, I was ready to go to the hotel by 9 or 9.30. I didn't know until Sunday morning that there were people that stayed in the church to well beyond midnight that night because they just did not want to leave because of that incredible sense of the glory and the presence and the peace of God that was there. They'd rather just stay there in church with no meeting going on. You see, that's one of the characteristics that has been found across the ages. Why? Because he's the Prince of Peace. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but what? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, another common experience in people in revival is an overwhelming sense of conviction and sorrow for sin. The same week that revival broke out in New York, the prayer revival of 1857 with Jeremiah Lanfear, that very week across the Atlantic in Belfast, Northern Ireland, revival came. I was in Belfast, Northern Ireland a few months ago. They need another revival in Belfast. But there was a businessman, a young businessman in September of 1857 that had eaten his lunch and was walking down a sidewalk in Belfast on his way back to his job when suddenly he was stricken by the power of God on the sidewalk. And he fell and he began crying out in great agony. And people seeing him and hearing him thought he'd been injured, thought he'd been robbed or something traumatic had happened to him. And they began to go to him. This young businessman fell on his knees and on his face on the sidewalk and began weeping under the intense conviction of the presence of God. People that came near him, he would yell at them, stay back, unclean, unclean, unclean. It was said that even people that came near to him, when they got close to where he was, it was like they stepped into a tornado of the holiness of God. And they began to repent under this intense burning awareness of the awfulness of sin in the eyes of a just and holy God. It was like dropping a big rock in a small pond of water and seeing the waves go out from the center in every direction. From from that place on the street, the revival began to go in Belfast in every direction, so that by 5 o'clock that afternoon, it was said that people walking down the streets of Belfast could hear the sound of people weeping, in their houses, behind closed windows, and behind closed doors, in the awesome presence of God, and the convicting power of sin. In those days, the cemeteries were filled with people running to the graveyards and throwing themselves on the ground in cemeteries, crying out for mercy, saying, God, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man unless you save me. I'm dying. Can you imagine cemeteries filled with people weeping under the power of God? Churches filled to capacity. People standing by the thousands outside in a cold, pouring Irish rain because there was no room for them in the churches. Presbyterian churches with balconies were afraid the balconies would collapse under the weight of the people that had crowded into. All these things began in Belfast literally in the same days that it was happening. It began in America in a prayer revival and nobody knew what, but it was God, you see. Revival is always orchestrated by God. It's a God thing. It was this intense conviction and sorrow for sin. My brothers and sisters, it has to come again. 
We cannot afford as a nation any more revivals where nobody has any sense of conviction of sin because God is a holy God. The Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. And He is the Spirit of the fear of God. And we've not seen that dimension of His personality yet, but we're going to. One of the third characteristics common to revival is what we call overwhelming joy, sometimes referred to as holy laughter. That's what came to us. And that was really the thing that began to break out in 1993 and 94 and 95 was manifestation of holy laughter. How many of you have ever experienced that? It's wonderful. You say, well, that's just emotionalism. No, I saw a woman totally healed by the power of God of cancer, laughing, just totally intoxicated, looked like a drunk, 45 minutes of laughter and got up off the floor and the cancer was gone. They couldn't find it. One of the most remarkable things I've ever witnessed in revival, and I think the thing that convinced me that holy laughter was really a God thing, was in a Rodney Howard Brown meeting, which was characterized by holy laughter. I was up in the front of the meeting, and there was a young woman with a baby that had come forward for prayer, and I took the baby. And I was seated over at the far end, and I took the baby just so the mother could be prayed for, and and whatever God wanted to do, God would do it. And so I've got this little eight-month-old, probably seven or eight months, because she was a crawler. It was right before they start walking. I've got her down on the far end, way over there, alone, and all these several hundred people are there. And I'm kind of corralling this baby. She'd obviously had a good nap that afternoon, and she was woman on a mission. I mean, we're going to go somewhere. And I'll never forget it. Rodney Howard Brown came over to that baby and laid hands on that baby and prayed that God would bless that little baby. And I'm babysitting over here, and that baby is over here crawling on the floor, and suddenly the baby would just flip upside down like a turtle on her back, just laughing hysterically. And it was like somebody was tickling her. And this would go on for 15 or 20 seconds, and suddenly it would stop. And she would sit up with a little fur on her head and look around like, well, what in the world happened to me? Oh, well, I'm on my way. And she'd start crawling, and she'd crawl two or three feet, and I mean, it hit her again. And I mean, she's on her back, on her side, just laughing like somebody is just tickling her hilariously. It would go on for 15 or 20 seconds, and it would stop as soon as it started. And she'd sit up, and she would look around with the most puzzled, what is this that is happening to me? Oh, well, I sat there with tears in my eyes. And I watched this go on for at least 15 minutes or longer of this little crawling little girl. I mean, you can tell me all day that you can mental suggestion and hypnosis and all of these kinds of things can explain. But you can't take a baby crawling on the floor and get a baby to laugh in hilarious laughter on and off for 15, 20 minutes non-stop. And I think when I watched that baby that night, I think that was the thing in that first week of revival that caused me to really realize, you know, this is not what we prayed for. This is not what we expected. My head is going tilt. My heart is going. It's wonderful. But watching that little baby getting filled with holy laughter, I knew it was the real deal. I think that's what was going on on the day of Pentecost because they accused him of being full of new wine. As I believe they were laughing and they just looked like a bunch of drunks that were having a good time. Fourthly, heartfelt worship where people just love to worship God. They just love to worship Him. and It's not just singing the list of songs but it's spirit and truth worship. Signs and wonders When God comes, when the heavenly realms invade the earthly realms, signs and wonders will invariably follow. Now, what are signs or wonders? Well, they're signs that make people wonder. 
what's going on in order that people will read the sign and understand that the kingdom of heaven has become the kingdom of God and that God's in this place and God's big and we're little and he's holy and we're not and we need to sit up and take notice and get on board with the program here. Signs and wonders can always are a part of revival. These can include but not limited to the following. Shaking, we've talked about that. Being slain in the spirit. That used to happen in Wesley's meetings. That happened in George Whitfield's meetings in such a great dimension that George Whitfield would preach in the fields of England and people would come by the thousands and they used to put ushers. Men would stand around the trees to keep people from crawling up in the trees so that they could hear better or see better because Whitfield had learned when the heavenly realms invade the earthly realms and the glory of God come, people get slain in the spirit and fall out of the trees. George Whitfield wrote in his own journal about a meeting on a Sunday afternoon in a place called Kilsyth where he said, I saw 10,000 people suddenly stricken in a moment. He said they were carried away as wounded from the battlefield, being slain in the Spirit. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible, and it's in history of great revivals. Drunkenness, or people appearing to be drunk, laughter, jerking. One of the things that was common in the Great Awakening was people jerking. In fact, the Cane Ridge, Kentucky revival, they called it people getting the jerks, people getting the jerks in church. Some of you are smiling at me right now because you've probably met a jerk in church someplace. But that wasn't the kind. We're talking about people just spasms, almost involuntary muscle spasms. Because why? They're connected to supernatural power. Dancing in the spirit. Being struck dumb and unable to speak. For people are totally awake, but it's like their mouth went to sleep. You say, where's that in the Bible? Go and read your Bible and you will find there. Zechariah was one of them. The husband of Elizabeth, the father of John the Baptist. I mean, he was struck dumb by an angel for her whole pregnancy. He was unable to speak. Sensations of intense burning and heat. Many people in revival have experienced the sensation of heat. How many of you have ever experienced that? Like a burning, sometimes in the hands or the head or the feet. Well, these are just manifestations of the glory of God. And then there's another dimension which I kind of put a catch-all on. Many others seen in history and others yet to be witnessed. I don't think we've got it all yet. But God can do whatever He wants to do. Trances and visions. Mariah Woodsworth Edder's ministry. Back in the 1800s, late 1800s, people would be struck down 25 miles away from where Mariah Woodsworth Edder was preaching. I mean, people would go down in their farmhouses, in their farms, in their barns, in their workplaces, be slain in the Spirit, have trances, visions in those days. Another characteristic is the loss of awareness of time. The account that I read to you from Cain Ridge. You know, people just got lost in the presence of God. They weren't worried about the clock anymore. Some churches, if it goes beyond an hour and 15 minutes, I mean, it's like being late with a payment to the IRS or something. I don't know. I mean, people just get scared to death. When true revival comes, people just get lost in the presence of God for hours sometimes for days. Those things don't matter. The activity of angels. Angels have always been a part of revivals. Angelic choirs. I remember in Lakeland, Florida, 1995, being in a meeting with 7,000 people, and we heard the sound of angelic choirs that were singing. It was one of the most remarkable, amazing things I've ever heard in my life. A video was done of that. It's gone all over the world and brought great blessing. But I was in that meeting, and I've watched the video many, many times, and the video does not do it justice. Just the sound of angelic choirs above the top of the meeting. You say, what do angelic choirs sound like? 
we sing in the key of A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. They sing in H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S. With all the flats and the sharps, there's no sound that you can create on the keyboard that matches it. This was a very real part of the Welsh Revival, 1904, 1905, 1906. I know of a pastor and his wife that I stayed in their home several years ago up in Canada. Their parents were teenagers in the Welsh Revival. And Pastor David told a story of his father. It was 18 or 19 years old. And he and another young man were traveling from one town in Wales to another. And how they were traveling over one of the mountains there. And how at 2 o'clock in the morning, these two young men sat up on the top of a mountain for two hours and just wept at the sound of listening to choirs of angels singing over the valley. There was not a house There was not a church. There was nobody for miles and miles. But they could hear the sound just like waves of music and choirs and worship and glory just brooding over towns, brooding over the valleys of Wales in those days. It was common for people to hear the sound of angelic choirs. Well, it's been a part of revival throughout history. And it is today. And it's going to take a greater influence in the days to come. The last one of these that I want to cover, and this is where it all has to ultimately come to, is lost people. Lost people coming to Jesus in mass to be saved. If we don't have lost people coming to Jesus to be translated out of a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, we haven't had revival because it's for the lost that Jesus came. Now, very quickly, revival comes in unexpected ways. And that's why we have to stay with the Word of God. We've got to keep within the boundaries of wisdom and discernment and Scripture and hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit and the counsel of godly men and women. But revival doesn't always come in the way that we thought it was going to come. I've shared already about how we prayed and fasted for three years waiting on revival. And when it came, I wasn't sure I really wanted this because it didn't look the way I thought it would look. How many have ever read the works of Andrew Murray? Andrew Murray prayed in South Africa for 30 years for revival to come. 30 long years. And then word came to South Africa that the Welsh revival had broken out that revival had come to Wales. And Andrew Murray was ecstatic. He quickly packed his bags and made arrangement for passage by sailing ship and however he could get away to get from South Africa to Wales to be a part of what God was doing. But when Andrew Murray came to Wales to the revival he'd been praying for for 30 years, he was astounded He only stayed four days and he said, I've got to leave and go back home because if I stay here, I'm going to say something against the work that God is doing because the Welch revival didn't look like Andrew Murray thought it was going to look. And he wisely recognized that rather than try to correct it, Rather than try to steer it or try to manage it or try to help it, he recognized in his spirit that it was in fact an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. Even though it did not compute with his head, he wisely chose to enjoy the presence of God and get this luggage and go back to South Africa and remain silent and trust God to do whatever it was that God was going to do which ultimately God used that revival to bring revival all over the world in that generation. There was a man by the name of Frank Bartleman, and I'm closing now. Frank Bartleman had started a Bible school in Topeka, Kansas. And it was in Topeka, Kansas on New Year's Eve in the year 1900 that God baptized a young woman in the Bible school in the Holy Spirit She prayed in perfect Chinese for three days and three nights and never known a word of Chinese. 
And Frank Bartleman began to preach and teach and began to reintroduce the baptism of the Holy Spirit to the church. And God began to restore the gifts, and Bartleman had prophesied that great revival was coming. One of Frank Bartleman's students, I'm giving you some wrong information here. That was not Frank Bartleman. Frank Bartleman was associated with the people from Topeka. Please make that correction. Excuse me for my error. But Frank Bartleman had been influenced by the people from Topeka and was passionately in pursuit of revival. And God had filled a young man by the name of James J. Seymour with the Holy Spirit. It was James J. Seymour that God used to ignite the Zusa Street Revival in Los Angeles, California in 1906. Frank Bartleman was so excited about James J. Seymour and the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the Azusa Street Revival that he went rushing to California to attend the revival. But his reaction was not what you would have expected from a man that had preached on it for years and years and years. The revival that he'd waited for was a revival that was affecting primarily Afro-Americans. Frank Bartleman was a Ku Klux Klan sympathizer. And he didn't like it that Azusa Street was primarily a black revival. He actually referred to it as being a darky revival. Can you imagine such? And totally blew it. And they asked him to leave. He said, none of this is of God. Because it didn't look like he thought it was going to look. It didn't sound like he thought it was going to sound. And God was doing something with his precious people that Frank Barman had a problem with because of the color of their skin. My brothers and sisters, you see, the human mind can be the greatest adversary to the work of the move of God that we know. Well, this kind of brings us to the end of our second session. When God comes, people experience things. Let's keep it clean. Let's keep it pure. Let's stay with the Word. But let's don't throw a bucket of cold water on the genuine fire that God ignites. Amen? Amen.